0: Starting in Exodus chapter 21, we're going to cover a lot of ground, so uh, go ahead and open your Bible if you've got it to Exodus chapter 21, and I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a review just to get us all back on track, or kind of get us caught up. Every week in this series, Out of Exile, we are touching on a theme that carried the Israelites out of their captivity and toward the promises of God. Our First week in the series, Christopher explored with us the threat that motivated the Israelites to leave. We, we discovered that you've got to have a threat to get you motivated. <laughs> and the threat, the, the, the what in that story was the crackdown by the Pharaoh on the birth of Israelite boys. The why was an effort to keep people um, enslaved in fear. So we learned that in crisis, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. What you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. That was the theme of week one. In the second week, we talked about Moses' call to leadership, and we learned that an unsurrendered will blinds us to the call of God, while a surrendered will binds us to the call of God. In other words, if you surrender to God's will, you will find God's will. That was week two. Week three, we talked about that miraculous rescue when the Israelites were finally released from Egypt and sent out into the desert where they would begin the process of forming themselves as people who worship the one true God. And we learned that rescue is a two-part formula. We are not just set free from what enslaves us. We are set free to... Serve and worship the Lord, which is to say that deliverance is not just about pain avoidance or comfort levels or getting our way. Deliverance is ultimately about the God we worship. That's the why. Deliverance is ultimately about the God we worship. Then week four, Mike uh, told us the story of how the Israelites were giving manna in the desert and water springing from rocks, and we talked about the signs of God that manifest in desert travel that help us develop a sensitivity to what God is doing in and around us. And we learn that manna falls where the people are. Faith is not a solo act. In other words, when we it's when we camp together around the presence that we are best positioned to receive the blessings of God. Last week, we talked about the Ten Commandments, and we discovered exactly what Jesus said, that all the laws can be summed up in these two commands, love God and love each other. The law, we discovered last week, was not just about getting us to act right. It's where it's there to sanctify us, to shape our hearts toward God and each other. So, today... We're going to talk more about the law. The law in science, in the world of science, the law is a formula that tells us what things will do. So we know, for instance, if I drop this pen on the ground, the pen is not going to get harmed. Nobody's bothered by that, but gravity is what got it there. And if somebody walks through later today and I leave it on the ground, if they weren't here this morning, they'll make a theory about it. Why exactly... That happened. They might just—they don't. Somebody dropped their pen accidentally when they were walking across. They didn't even know what happened. That could be what someone um, what someone theorizes. But somebody else may come by and say, "Oh no, actually, Caroling got really mad during worship day and she threw the pen down." That totally changes the theory. Right? You, you might have to adjust your thinking on why it's there. That's the difference between laws and theories in scientific discovery. Laws tell us the what, but theories tell us the why. So, when we read the story of Exodus, uh, the, the, uh, in the first five books of the Bible, this journey of the Israelites out of, uh, out of four centuries of slavery in Egypt, not so hard to get the what. That's quite a story in those first five books. And there's 613 laws embedded in that story. There's a lot of the what. And that what can be misleading. In fact, we hear this all the time, right? We, We hear the God of the Old Testament sounds like an angry and mean old man. These laws range from bizarre to cranky. And and, and is this some angry old guy just trying to suck all the fun out, out of life? Does it sound like Jesus? You hear that all the time when you compare the Old Testament to the New Testament if you don't know what you're looking at. That's what happens when we focus on the what. But when we read the Old Testament, or really any book of the Bible, with ears to hear and a heart for understanding how the kingdom of God works, We also get the why, and the why makes all the difference. The why is what lubricates that journey from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The the why is what makes it a constant. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now, that this morning you will come closer to understanding the why behind the story out of exile. Will you pray with me? Jesus, my prayer is that you would pour out, pour out your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit over us. Give us ears to hear you, Lord. Give us eyes to see you in the Word. Lord, you've heard my heart cry that these people, that these people would um, today come Closer to understanding the glorious continuity of the Scripture, how you've never stopped working on our, on our behalf, never, never. So God, I'm praying that you would give us the grace to see ourselves in this story out of exile. Give us grace, Father, to understand your heart for us, and give us a heart to receive everything you have for. Amen. So today we are looking at a big and complicated section of the story and <laughs> of the Israelite journey out of exile, Ex, Exodus 21 through 24. So go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 21. This section sounds a little like Leviticus to me. There's a lot of detail about how to live together with other people. Some of it sounds obvious, and we wonder why God feels the need to say these things. But remember, these are people who have lived as slaves, not just for their whole lives, but for generations. The slave mentality is their generational curse, it's all they've ever known. They've never been well cared for or well fed. They've never been able to trust those in authority over them. They've never really had a handle on the character of God. They've never known the why, because they've never been free to worship the one true God without the influence of a pagan religious culture in the air all around them, a culture that saw their gods as a mix of superstition and competition. Pagan gods were gods to be bargained with, not trusted. So the Israelites' first challenge as free people is to figure out how free people live. And that's still our daily challenge, isn't it? How do I live as a free person designed by a holy God? You should write that question down. That's kind of the whole point today. How do we live as free people designed by a holy God? So as I've already said, last week we walked through all ten of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. I want you to think of those commandments almost like headings over sets of more specific laws that happen uh, in the book of Exodus and also in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. So in chapters 22 to 24 of Exodus, God gets very specific about things we heard in the Ten Commandments like murder and uh, coveting and adultery. He covers all kinds of contingencies. What if I kill somebody by mistake? What if my animal kills someone? What if I kill somebody's slave? What if your animal gets taken while it's in my care? What do we do with a sorcerer or with people who worship idols? There are laws that tell us how to to, to lend to poor people without taking advantage of them. And laws about what to do with someone who has had sex with an animal. It's in there. Why in the world would God need to mention that? It is the same reason God had to give so much detail about all the laws. It's because people with a slave mentality do all kinds of death-provoking things. People with a slave mentality still do all kinds of death-provoking things. So, read these laws in the Old Testament as instruction from a loving God who knows our design and who also knows we are fallen. All these laws are the what, but not the why. And the why is what matters. So, let's take one example. Look at Exodus chapter 21, verse 23. It's where we first hear this famous instruction, probably one of the more famous laws of the Old Testament. If there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And that sounds nothing, at least on the surface, like the grace of the New Testament, right? So we don't assume God meant for his people to walk around knocking out each other's eyes and teeth. It goes on immediately from those verses to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that if you injure a slave's eye, you have to let him go free. And you knock out a slave's tooth, you have to let him go free. Which is to say that you can't just go around knocking out people's everything and thinking you can get away with it. Lives matter. Even slaves' lives matter. You can't. If somebody knocks out your eye, you don't get to kill them. They knock out your tooth, you don't get to kill them. This was actually a step forward for enslaved people. So the point is not to send everyone out with holy permission to even the score on every perceived wrong or worse yet, to take worse Uh, retribution on someone who does something wrong to me. No, the point is that other people matter, even slaves, and that we can't treat them like barbarians, that we don't get to cancel people. Listen to me, friends. We don't get to cancel people just because they've offended you. You should write that down. Last week in my devotional reading, I got stopped by Luke chapter 6 actually wrote about it online. Maybe you read it, but you're going to get it again. But the place I got stuck was where Jesus says, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. You find the same passage in Matthew chapter 5. It comes just after uh, the place where Jesus says, You've heard it was said long ago, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Matthew, right after he talks about eye for eye and tooth for tooth, the very next thing he says is, Love your enemies. And that that's where three words where I got stuck in, in Luke chapter six. The first thing I thought when I read it was, I do, Jesus, I do. I don't I, I don't think I have enemies. I love people. I tend to think I'm better than the average at forgiving and forgetting. Jesus, I love sitting in my kitchen reading this. Jesus told me to go back and look at it again and read it, these instructions again. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he isn't talking about people I don't like. Jesus is talking about people who don't like me. And I'm thinking, oh, well then, shouldn't you be talking to them, Jesus? Aren't they the ones, if they're the ones with the issue, shouldn't you be giving them the what for? Jesus doesn't bite because they're not the ones this bit of teaching is about. This teaching is about us, Jesus says. Me. Love your enemies, Jesus tells me. Because here's why. My enemies are my ticket to understanding the kingdom. find out a lot about ourselves when we pay attention to how we relate to the people who don't like us, who would rather cancel us, who don't want us around. The clear advice from Jesus is, bless them. Bless the ones who curse me. Pray for the ones who mistreat me. He tells me to be patient with the slappers and generous with the takers. And I'm reading this last week while I'm thinking about what I'll preach today from Exodus chapter 21 to 24. This came first to me as a devotional word. And I'm realizing that every one of the comments from Jesus about what I knew need to do in the face of my enemies, every bit of it has its roots back here in this passage in Exodus. So the lesson of Exodus is in the lesson of Luke. It's the same. Pay attention to how you relate to people who have done you wrong. That Jesus says is an exercise, a deep end exercise in sanctification. If you love only those who love you, Jesus said this. What credit is that to you? There's no stretch in loving people who love you back if you exact revenge eye for eye, tooth for tooth, making sure you always get yours, that always the, the balance on the scale is, is, is even. Always getting the last word. Always getting heard. Jesus says, while you're busy balancing the scales, you are missing the kingdom of God. You miss it. You want to understand the kingdom of God? Learn how to love the people who don't love you back. In fact, actively do good to them, Jesus says. Give them things with no strings attached. They ask for your coat, give them your shirt. Because in the feast of God's law, and it is a feast, we learned this last week, in the feast of God's law, no strings attached is the secret sauce, it's the gravy. And you know what it will get you, living out that command? Well, probably it will wear you out. At least at first because these are hard muscles to exercise. And there is constant tension against. Because people have no who have no respect for you will read all kinds of impurity into your motives. One of Martin Luther King's favorite sermons was well, based on this text in Luke chapter six. He first preached it in 1957. In 1956, the year before, a bomb exploded on his front porch while his wife and child were still there. In January of 1957, a second unexploded bomb was found on his front porch. And by October of that year, King was preaching one message all over the country, love your enemies that one concept became the bedrock of the nonviolent civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s the whole point of that movement was to refuse to pay e- to repay evil for evil eye for eye tooth for tooth and i can tell you that lots of people lost eyes and teeth in that season and we can argue that that one principle all by itself love your enemies was powerful enough to accelerate the dismantling of possibly the most evil system in American history. It was not the militant movements that got it done. It was an absolute commitment to loving the enemy, even if they were not asking to be loved. Because, as it turns out, it's cheaper to pardon than to resent. You should write that down. It is cheaper to pardon than to resent. This is from that famous sermon that Martin Luther King preached. He wrote, or he said, he preached. Jesus was very serious when he gave this command to love your enemy. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. He realized it was painfully hard, pressingly hard, But because Jesus wasn't playing, because he was serious, we have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words. And to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live out this command. Why should we live it out? I'll tell you why. Because the heart of the gospel is mercy. Justice is always flavored by mercy. Go back to Exodus chapter 23, verse 2. Moses says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. In other words, there's no crowdsourcing in true justice, which is to say that just because your five best friends tell you that you're right and your enemy is dead wrong, that does not give you permission to write off the ones who don't like you, who have cursed you, who have mistreated you, who have slapped you, who have taken from you. Not in a kingdom community, you don't have that permission. Because when we crowdsource our justice, there is no community left. Or as Gandhi once said, eye for eye and before you know it the whole world is blind. It is easier to pardon than to result. The exercise of that muscle takes serious discipline. <laughs> You'll have to hang in there for a while with nothing but frustration for a return And then one day, Jesus says, this is Luke chapter 6, the payoff will show up. And the payoff is mercy. Not mercy received, but mercy encountered. Mercy understood. Mercy absorbed. Mercy grasped. You will know mercy. Which is to say, listen to me, which is to say that in this world, we can actually have the exquisite experience of what we'll feel in that blinding moment when we stand face-to-face with Jesus in heaven and experience His mercy. My friends, when we are the one on the receiving end of what ought to be justice, we who love Jesus will encounter mercy. And mercy is what we want, not justice. Mercy. Mercy is what we want, and mercy is what we will get. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. At this end of this section of laws, teased out from the ten big ones, God mentions an angel. He says this. I want to read this for you. He says, See, this is Exodus 23 20. See, I am sending an angel i'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place i have prepared pay attention to him listen to what he says do not rebel against him he will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him did you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, listen to this. I mean, here it is, Luke 6, right here. I will be the enemy to your enemies. I will oppose those who oppose you. You can stop being so defensive toward people who disagree with you, who malign you, who don't like you. Let me be your guard and your protector. I will deal with them. I will be enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. And my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land that I have promised you. There's so much here. Let's start with the angel. There's a ton of commentary and conjecture about who this angel is, but my goodness, he sounds familiar, doesn't he? <laughs> here in this very Old Testament-y passage is Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus. The same one who in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6 is having a conversation with these very passages in Exodus giving us the why beneath the what. Right here, camped out in the middle of these laws to remind us that no matter where we touch down in the Word of God, we find the same message, which is that the point of the law is not justice, but ultimately, the point of the law is lordship. Come on, people. It's about who gets to be lord. It's about whether or not we're willing to submit to God's will, if we're willing to let our preferences, our druthers, sit underneath His Lordship. Even our knee-jerk responses under His Lordship, our need to be right under His Lordship. Or if we plan to hang on to some enslaved parts of us, like how we deal with resentment and anger and how we manage our wounds, and how we deal with our enemies? Will we deal with people as if we are still slaves to death? With an eye-for-eye mindset? Or will we accept the freedom offered by this angel who promises us that if we will let him lead, let him be Lord, he will take our place and stand for us in the face of our enemies as both mercy and justice. Listen, the point of the law is to bring us into the presence of Jesus. Where we submit our will to His, our wants to His, our heart to His, so that He is the one determining our destiny. I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you. He will along the way, and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Because I am a Lord who brought you out of exile. My friends, the Holy God is still at that work. And every day, with every human on earth, he is still inviting us out of exile through Jesus Jesus is the answer to our own enslaved mentality, and he has won the right to be an answer by his blood. The section, after the law is given, ends with Moses building an altar at the foot of a mountain. And then he sends some guys to uh, gather animals, and they... They sacrifice on that altar, and Moses collects the blood, which is in the in the Old Testament represents life. I want you to look at Exodus chapter twenty-four, verse eight. Moses then took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, "This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." This is a huge moment, a huge moment in Israelite. In, in Israel's history. This is the moment when God offers them covenant relationship. For people who had just been rescued from slavery by placing blood on the doorposts of their homes, this, this, this moment was not lost on them. The point was obvious. For an Israelite, it was clear that redemption is in the blood. Life is in the blood. To receive this Blood, this blood covenant, was to receive the very life of God. And what they received in that desert was a shadow of the atoning work to come. They received the law, and they received the covenant in blood. But even they didn't have yet the whole story. This mountain on which they received the law, this sacrifice with which they confirmed their covenant, this was just a taste of what was to come. And the writer of Hebrews, remembering this story in the book of Exodus, tells us the rest of the story. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death, they heard. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And then the writer says this, no, no, you have come to a different mount. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. Come on, people. Whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. And out of our man, Jesus, flows the divine blood of redemption, the cup that finally fully makes an end of our slavery to an an eye-for-an-eye world where we can never get it right. It makes an end to all those animal sacrifices and to our seemingly never-ending need to get it right on our own strength. It makes a way for every person who claims the power of his Blood to be finally and fully delivered from slavery. One sacrifice for all time. Hebrews says he sets aside the first, the first which held its place, to establish the second. And by that will we have been made whole by the body. Of Jesus Christ. Once for all. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, precious is the blood That can make me white as snow. No other fountain. the law. He is justice. He is mercy. He is power over sin. He is power over death. His life shows us how to live. We come back to our question, how do we live as free people designed by a holy God? Even by taking Jesus at His word. By trusting His sacrifice by our surrender to his worship. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.